Uh, let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for watering our gardens and uh, our flowers yesterday and last night. And uh, we're grateful for that. Pray that uh, you would be here this morning with us even more than you are have been now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you turn uh, to Matthew 5, 33-37, that is this morning's passage. I will also be reading from Hebrews 6, 13-20. Uh, So have that ready to go uh, as well. Would you all stand as I read the word? Matthew 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes on oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. You can be seated. This is uh, Golgotha by John Heath Stubbs. In the middle of the world, in the center of the polluted heart of man, a midden, a stake stemmed in the rubbish. From lipless jaws, Adam's skull gassed up from the garbage. I lie in the discarded dross of history, Ground down again to the red dust, the obliterated image, create me. From lips cracked with thirst, the voice that sounded once over the billows of chaos when the royal banners advanced, replied through the smother of dark, all is accomplished, all is made new, and look, all things once more are good. Then, with a loud cry, he exhaled his his spirit. So before I start, let me get to the right passage here. Before I start, I want to claim uh, the promise of Acts 1-8 for 
for me and all of us this morning that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, resulting in us being witnesses to the very end of the planet. I suppose I have to do some apologetics work regarding our sermon series, apologetics meaning defending rather than saying sorry. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle mentions this word in, in verse 15, it's one of my favorite verses, when he exhorts his readers to give a defense or an apologia, which is the word in Greek and we get the word apologetics from it, of the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, I'm not defending my faith here since my defense is not faith related. But in the last few weeks, our preachers, the bringers of the word, have impugned my intentions as the generator of the preaching schedule because of the topics they had to tackle, in this case, lust and divorce. I have to say, objectively, they did an adequate job. (laughs) Let me answer their observation with my introduction here. A very good case can be made about Matthew chapters 5 through 7 as some of the best of the best of what the Bible contains. There are a few other places that summarily lay out the heart of Christianity, and these words are the ones recorded from the very mouth of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, all scripture is God-breathed, according to 2 Timothy. So, in the completeness of the Old and New Testament, it is all the revelation of God. All of it, in a sense, is red-lettered. But, if we were to encourage someone who was curious as to what Christianity is all about... Matthew's chapter 5 through 7 is not a bad place to start, especially these days, because so many people, even in our culture, are unfamiliar with what the Bible actually says. So doing a deep dive in Matthew 5 through 7 is wise. And there is so much memorable stuff here as far as concepts and verses that is powerfully evident. Starting with the list of blessed, Jesus' opening remarks, followed up by the by calling his followers to be both salt and light, that we are to be preservers, salt, and revealers, light, of his teachings, Matthew 28. He states emphatically that the law, in, the, in Matthew 5 through 7, he states emphatically that the law, the Hebraic law, that came down from the very finger of God, is fulfilled in him. He states that in this passage. In other places, there are the memorable sections about loving your enemies, something currently very countercultural. We have his teachings on how to pray, and we read Jesus' teaching about what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it doesn't stop there. We have the sections on laying up treasure in heaven, and that wonderful exhortation from Jesus' mouth, do not be anxious about your life. And in chapter 7, we have section after section of gold nuggets and contents, stuff about judging others, ask and it will be given, the golden rule, a tree and its fruit, and any one Christian, and any Christian should know or does know about where he talks about where you build your house on a foundation of sand or rock. And in these chapters, Jesus is not shying away from the hard things, too. In chapter 7, he talks about sending away people he never knew after they approach him, thinking they were followers. Who wants to be one of those individuals? Not me. In chapter 6, There is giving to the needy and fasting. Things that come easy to us all. I know I have no problems with giving to the needy and fasting at all. Nope. No problems. And of course, in chapter 5, we have Jesus talking about our anger, our lust, and of course, marriage and divorce. Hard subjects to be sure, 
But I'm glad Jesus is, is recorded to have addressed them. There's no one better qualified. And then there are these verses and the subject. Oaths. <laughs> Oaths? Come on, Jesus. You're tackling heavy topics like lust and divorce. You're inspiring us to be salt and light. You teach us how you would pray. You console us with asking us not to be worried or anxious. And here you oaths. <laughs> Just the word in English audibly sounds very near to a stifled burp. The word even today sounds old. As if when I say it, I need to be clothed in armor with a heavy shield and lance in hand and a broadsword attached to my belt and even more heavily armored faithful steed, a warhorse by my side, ready to propel me into the hordes of barbarians at the castle gates. Oaths. It's just, do you take oaths when you're a knight? So Brett and Buzzy, who's not here, but he'll listen to the recording, I'm sure. Next time we pass through the sections of the scriptures, I will be glad to carry the weight of lust and divorce in the pulpit, as long as you two are willing to take on oaths. Now, I just, I know Buzzy and Brett and myself, I know I'm grateful Jesus talked about these things. That he is our North Star. And he, he does have the final word, always. And both Buzzy and Brett did a great job on two very difficult topics. So oaths. Now, before I lose you to the word, let me say to you this morning that we should not be deceived by the seemingly inert power of the topic of oaths. As I took a deeper look at this passage and rolled it in my mind and meditated on it, I was astonished at how far reaching the idea of oaths go. I was convicted and inspired at how deep oaths go into the very marrow, the very DNA of our lives. I mean actual DNA, not cultural DNA. That oaths go back even to the very first moments of creation. I hope in some small way, in the few words I say this morning... They will bring you along the same path I've been walking for the last few weeks. This morning, I want to tackle three main areas about oaths from these verses. First, I want to talk about what an oath is. Second, I want to take a look at what Jesus is saying here specifically or particularly about oaths. And finally, I want to look at the world, what the world would look like without oaths. What is an oath? What is Jesus saying here particularly? What would it look like without oaths? First, what's an oath? Oaths have been around for a very long time, even longer than the Knights of the Middle Ages. Oaths can be seen in a variety of places and have other names and nuances of meaning. A promise is a type of oath. A vow or a pledge is a type of oath. To swear to something in the same, is in the same arena of an oath. And in the scripture, one of the most important and oldest of words is the concept of a covenant. A covenant is a type of oath. Even today, there are oaths. There are oaths of office for political positions and even for law enforcement in the military. The Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts take oaths, though I am not sure that they are the same as they were when I was an adolescent. But similar types of things are done in clubs, societies, uh, whether religious or civic. Even gangs have some sort of oath or pledge. As was mentioned last week by Buzzy, when we read the words of him, uh, when he read the words a man and a woman say to each other at their wedding, it's a type of oath. It's called a wedding vow. When we sign a contract, we are taking an oath of sorts. We like contracts, don't we? 
in this culture. When you join a homeowner's association, you take an oath. When you click that little accept button on your computer or smartphone, on that screen that says, there are new rules and regulations for cookies on websites or software programs, you are of sorts taking an oath or making a promise. You're agreeing to something. I remember back in the 90s when Steve Pierce and I were roommates in Massachusetts and Dilbert was a big cartoon at the time. And we would, I think he got hooked on it first but and drew me in because they were funny. Uh, Dilbert showed in a humorous and sagacious way the plight of the corporate office culture. In one particular string of cartoons, there was an introduced the idea of when you click that accept or agree button on software, Microsoft software, you are agreeing to become Bill Gates's pool boy. <laughs> no one reads all those words on those agreements, so you just click. Well, in Dilbert, when you click without reading, what are you agreeing to? Well, in the 90s, it was, if it was Microsoft software, you agreed to become Bill Gates's pool boy. I actually think Cameron Bunce reads all those. You read all those agreements, Cameron Bunce? It must take a while for him to download software, but go get it. (laughs) None of us really uh, read all those. Anyway, vows, promises, oaths are very current and ubiquitous in our current culture. Even in our fiction. I solemnly swear I'm up to no good. Sound familiar? Thank you, Harry Potter. I also think this level of commitment via an oath or pledge has taken a hard hit, especially in the last decade. There is a general malaise about whether a person, let alone an institution, can keep their word. We seem to be in a place where the natural launch pad for engaging with things in our lives is the platform of cynicism. We doubt. When someone says something, we doubt. When a corporation or a corporate leader, when a political leader, when anybody even says something, especially people we don't agree with, we doubt they mean it. They're not going to keep their word. And I have sympathy for this response, but it is ultimately, the platform of cynicism is ultimately a platform of constant decay that could lead even to death. Now again, I want to say there are nuanced differences between the various forms of oath-taking. But for now, basic way of thinking about an oath or its cousins of promise, vow, or pledge is committing to act in the name of something greater than yourself. That's just a basic definition. Committing to act in the name of something greater than yourself. They are all a commitment of sorts. I will do this. I will not do that. That's what an oath is. We all do this every day. So, that's an oath. What is Jesus saying here particularly? Verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. At face value, it would seem easy to interpret what Jesus is saying here. Do not take an oath, ever, no matter what. In verse 34, Jesus actually says, do not take an oath. And that would be the safe way to think about this passage. Concluding this is kind of problematic 
Because at the time Jesus said these things, there was a long history of oath-taking recorded in the histories, the Hebraic histories, that showed oaths made even by God. We read it in the Hebrews passage. The most obvious example here is mentioned in our second passage, Hebrews 6. Specifically, verse 13, where the writer of Hebrews writes, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. This is referencing Genesis 22, 16 and 17. After Abraham showed his faith in God by following his command to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac, which he does not do. After God stops Abraham, the angel of the Lord, who some say was a physical manifestation of the Son of God, I, I agree with that, says the, son, uh, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, By myself I have sworn, this is in Genesis 22, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. If Jesus was saying, do not take an oath, then here we have God himself doing something he is telling us not to do. He is saying, do as I say, not as I do. And that doesn't seem to be in the character of God. If Jesus is not saying, do not take an oath ever, then what is he saying with the statement? Two things help us here, looking at the specific phrasing and the context. This will help us understand what he's saying. Notice in verse 33 what he says. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This, is what, this phrase here is what Jesus says at the start, and he contrasts it with do not take an oath. But notice, he says, do not take an oath falsely. Not do not take an oath, period. It is the type of oath taken, not whether an oath is taken. So we must ask, what kind of oath shall we take, or should we take? I'll address that more in my third point. For the context of Jesus' words here, he is addressing directly a tendency in the human heart to cover our tuchuses, so to speak. We human beings in our nature, have an insatiable lean toward wanting clarity about certain stuff, especially about judgment or consequence to any law or regulation. We all do this. I do it myself. We like to justify ourselves. So we look for any path that places us in the clear. Rules that we think help steer us clear of chastisement. Perhaps an image would help here as an example. Suppose a law or regulation that is a good law and regulation... Is like the edge of the cliff at uh, uh, edge of a cliff at the Grand Canyon. If you cross that line of the good law regulation, you fall off into the chasm. Now that's not the chasm of hell; that's just the chasm of consequence. So a, a wise person would look at that and say, "Well, I will make a law that draws the line of consequence two feet in from the cliff." Now we have a line two feet in in front of the actual edge of the cliff. That if we were to cross. That line, we would not fall in, right? But in fact, we'd still have room before the edge of the cliff. You getting the idea here? Here's the law. Oh, well, the wise thing is I'll make my rule here so that I don't fall in. That way, we can change our course and avoid the consequences of the cliff. It's not a bad idea, really. It's, it's safe. I'm actually sympathetic to that idea. 
There are several problems with this method, however. First, when you start trying to be wise and draw lines to keep you safely far from actual transgression, others will join in and make their own lines further from the edge. Because two feet from the cliff is great, but wouldn't four feet be even better? How about 10? Scratch that 50. And you may join in and make lines even further from the edge of the cliff. The second problem is the consequence of that behavior. You see, after so many lines are drawn to keep ourselves from consequence and judgment, pretty soon we'll find that we've ended up in the panhandle of Texas asking ourselves, where's the Grand Canyon? We lose sight of the actual valuable law. Perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he says in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The religious leaders were doing something good and tithing even their spices. However, by doing so in the attempt to justify themselves, they were forgetting the important parts of the law. They ended up, had ended up in the Texas panhandle when Jesus was saying, there's a view of the Grand Canyon you are missing to your detriment. And the religious leaders were doing something similar here in Matthew 5. Notice in verse 33, Jesus says, do not swear falsely. And fleshes that out with the phrase, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. At the time, there were an abundance of lines that had been drawn about oath-taking that drew the Israelites away from the actual law of the Grand Canyon. In this case, when you swear an oath, what do you swear to? It was believed that if you swore an oath to God, you would have to keep it. How? What a novel idea. Because it was to God. You were swearing to God. And if you did not keep that oath, you would be judged by God for it. That was the edge. So intelligent and self-important religious leaders over the centuries began to draw lines away from that edge in order to justify themselves by their actions, to keep themselves away from the edge. The reasoning went like this. If I can't get out of an oath if I take one in God's name, then perhaps I can take an oath by something almost as important as God or seemingly as important. And since that thing I swear an oath to is not God, it can give me an out if I have to break that oath for good or bad reasons. And therefore, I will not be judged by God for that oath because I did not swear to God, but something else. You see that logic? It's actually rather canny, but woefully flawed. Apparently, some of the objects that were being sworn to at the time of Jesus were, verse 34, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, even by heaven, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Verse 35, do not swear an oath at all by the earth, for it is his footstool. Verse 35, do not swear an oath at all by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 36, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So objects of oaths were... Persons, a person's own head or themselves, the city of the great king, Jerusalem, the good earth, and heaven. Those were four examples Jesus used. All four of these, Jesus says here, he do not swear oaths to them. Why? 
Why did Jesus say, don't even swear oaths to them? He's going right at what the, the leaders were doing. They were saying, I'm, I'm going to swear by Jerusalem, not God. And Jesus is saying, don't even swear by Jerusalem. I'm going to swear by my head or myself. Don't even do that. Why did Jesus do that? Because Jesus was essentially saying, you won't get out of an oath no matter what or who you have sworn to. Because everything you swear an oath to is still connected to God, the creator of all things. Colossians 1.17 says, talking about Jesus, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things. Cities, hair follicles, heaven and earth. All things hold together. See what Jesus was doing here? Don't even swear by the, your head. You can't even make your head hair white or black. In our very existence, where can a person swear that is untouched or not created by God? Answer, nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. If we can't swear by anything that isn't tra- uh, traced back to God, what is our option? Verse 37. That was the option. Jesus lays it out here. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Which brings me to my last point. Remember my points. What is an oath? What is Jesus saying here about oaths and now a world without oaths? In verse 37, Jesus seems to, be, to simply break through the necessity of oaths by saying yes or no. He's not even saying saying no. He's just saying let you, say yes or no. The Apostle James in his book in the New Testament picks up on this when he writes in chapter 5, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. It's almost as if Jesus is bypassing the need for oaths. Think about it this way. Would an oath or a promise, a vow, a sworn statement be needed if there was never the possibility of their being broken? Would we need an oath if we could never break an oath? Would we need one? Look at the phrase that Jesus uses here in verse 37. Anything more than this comes from evil. Ooh, that's kind of frightening. Jesus is talking about evil. He's supposed to talk about love. Let's get back there. No, he's talking about anything else comes from evil. Anything more than what? Any, what, what does he mean? Anything more than what? A yes or a no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Whoa. <laughs> Condemnation. As I said earlier, an oath is a sort of line or self-imposed law that someone puts on themselves to place them in a position where they have to do what is sworn. An oath is taken when there is, no, there is not only the possibility of keeping the oath, but also when there is the possibility of breaking it as well. When you take an oath, it could be broken. Let me ask it this way. Why would God need to take an oath? Think about that. Why would he need to take an oath? Is there at all the possibility of God breaking an oath? (laughs) You know, you're supposed to say, 
No. <laughs> does he say, does God say, may I strike myself down if I don't do this act? <laughs> no, he doesn't say that. That's foolishness. Again, James talks about the character of God in chapter, in this. In chapter uh, 1 of James, verse 17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation due to change. The King James Version uses the phrase, There is no shadow of turning in God. We sing the phrase in a hymn, don't we? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. No shadow of turning. If there is no possibility of God breaking an oath, then when he makes one, it is a yes or a no. He will do no other. God will not do evil. His oaths are not evil. Why? Because he is not broken by sin as we are. Our oaths are flawed because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? (coughs) Jeremiah 17. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They are abominable. They do abominable deeds. There is no, none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is anyone who understands, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 14. When Jesus says anything more than this comes from evil, I think he is talking about sin. Where did evil begin in this world? Romans 3 says, Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Evil, sin came into this world because of Adam and Eve. In Proverbs it says, pride goes before destruction. It was prideful of Adam and Eve to think, we don't need God when they absolutely needed God to exist. Pride went before their destruction. There would have been no need of oaths had sin not entered the world because everyone's yes would have been a yes and and their no would have been a no. This is why Jesus says anything else comes from evil. If anything more than a yes or a no is from evil and sin and any oath we take will essentially be broken by us, what are we to do then? I asked this earlier, what kind of oath are we to take? The answer, we look to the one who kept his oath and yet was executed for it. We, keep, we look to the one who keep, kept his oath and yet was executed for it. That sounds odd, but it is true. The one who didn't break any oaths, in fact kept all of them, was put to death by the ones who could never keep oaths. And it was for this very reason they couldn't keep oaths that the one who kept all oaths died. He kept even the ultimate unjust oath in order to offer his oath keeping to us. Look at the Hebrew passage in verses 19 and 20. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. What is the author of Hebrews saying here? The inner place behind a curtain, a steadfast anchor. Some quick gospel and Old Testament history here. The writer of Hebrews uh, was a Jew familiar with the whole temple sacrificial system and culture from the Old Testament to the New. And his writing reflects this content. Here, when he mentions the inner place behind the curtain, he is referencing the Holy of Holies in the temple. The place where once a year the high priest, after a rigorous cleansing sequence, went into that room to make a sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel and essentially on on behalf of humanity. It was the ultimate symbol of God forgiving his people and the world of their sins. The Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the temple and the world essentially by a curtain. You look at, it, you look at uh, structures, architectural structures of the temple. You see the courtyards, you see the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies. Well, between the holy place and the Holy of Holies was a curtain to divide. Because that was where God was. And he had to be separated from the rest of the world because he's holy and we're not. So a curtain was placed there. This one was a beautifully made, thick and heavy curtain from the description. It separated a holy God from a sinful world. In the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can look it up, it is stated that at the very moment of Jesus' death, that beautiful, heavy, thick curtain that hung there, dividing God from humanity, tore in two from top to bottom. The very moment Jesus died, he gave up his breath. It says in the accounts that he cried out, and they thought he was crying for Elijah. He cried out. When that happened, in the temple, not miles away, just miles away, that curtain ripped right down, top to bottom. This is a thick, heavy curtain, apparently. You need, they needed a, a donkey to, to move it back so that people get behind it. By the, by the oath keeper's death, he tore away the divide, literally, a curtain in this case, for the world of oath breakers to commune with God. He took down that divide, Jesus, by his death. He tore away the divide for the world of oath breakers, us, to commune with God. As it was supposed to be from the very beginning of time. Notice the writer of Hebrews connects this moment, the moment of Jesus' death, with the oath God swore to Abraham. See, it's not an accident that... He's talking about the curtain, Jesus taking down the curtain divide, and he talks about earlier in that passage we read about Abraham and the oath God took. He swore that with an oath to Abraham way back, hundreds of years before, recorded in Genesis 22. And even before that, in Genesis 12. God keeping unto death an oath he would never break for a people who would always break theirs. God kept an oath even to death for people that would never keep theirs, their oaths. What do you do? If you're someone who's walked with God for a while or have known him but have had difficulty, then hear the words from Hebrews about Jesus' Jesus's act for you. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, there are, these are not empty words to make you feel better, but are actual truth to make you human again, a real human, the way we were meant to be before we became oath breakers. If you're someone who has never known Jesus in this way, then I ask you, uh, to, you need to consider whether you want his oath to be yours. He doesn't ask you to make an oath to him. He knows you can't keep it. I can't keep it. He merely wishes you to receive by faith his oath that he kept for you. And that will make you his forever. It's true. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Uh, I'm, I just uh, can't believe that you would uh, give me something I do not deserve. That uh, even as I break oaths, I don't let my yes be yes or my no, no. I look for ways of justifying myself. You, you still uh, were a forerunner. You, you tore that curtain so that I could, and gave me your, your fulfillment of the oath to me. And you've done that for all of us. You offer that. You've given it and you offer it to all. Pray that you would remind us of that today, this week, and continually for the rest of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.